Partnerships in healthcare can be transformational. They can support healthcare professionals and bring insights and value to life science companies. And most importantly of all, they can improve outcomes and experience for patients. But it takes a lot of skill to get them right. In this podcast, we'll hear inside stories from people in the know about what it takes to make them work and crucially what not to do. I'm Claire Munro. I'm the founder and managing director of Dovetail Strategies, and this is Getting to the Heart of Health Partnerships. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the author and educator Shelley Harris. Shelley's the author of two brilliant novels, Jubilee and Vigilante, and she's the creative writing programme director at the University of Reading. Shelley's writing focuses on the many ways we humans are connected to each other in spite of everything that seems to separate us. She and I met on a writing course on the Greek island of Skiros in 2006, where we very sensibly decided to become friends. But I was really keen to invite Shelley onto the podcast because the story of her experience with Great Ormond Street Hospital is utterly fascinating and also illustrates so many great points about the patient perspective and how to get patient partnerships right. So Shelley, thank you so much for being my guest on the First Dovetail podcast. It's a joy to have you and thank you so much for being here. It's a total pleasure. So Shelley, You're a member of a club that nobody wants to join because 19 years ago, your baby son was a patient at Great Ormond Street Specialist Children's Hospital in London. Can you tell us what happened? So when my um, second son, Cal, was born, within two months of his birth, we were told that he had um, tetralogy of fallow. I suspect a lot of your listeners will know what this is, but just in case they don't. It's a complex heart defect. And um, uh, in 2002, when Cal was born, it it was called tetralogy, which means four in Greek, because there were four things wrong with the heart. I actually, apparently now, they're now saying it's actually three things because the fourth thing comes as a result of the other three. Boring, technical thing there. (laughs) That's science for you. That's your science there, constantly evolving. But... um, I suppose as a, as a loving parent, the thing we cared about was that actually untreated, it's fatal. So until the 50s, every person who was born with Tetralogy of Fallow died. And then in the 50s, they developed a repair. And of course, because science, that repair, had, well, I was going to say it's become more sophisticated and it might have done. But actually, a key thing that's happened is that they've been able to do it earlier and earlier. So when Cal was just shy of six months, like five and a half months old, he went into Great Ormond Street to have this repair. And so our health partnership experience, it's about that crisis of the operation and immediate post-op, but then then it's really regular 
cardiology checks and visits forever. It's interesting listening to you talking about it in a fairly um, positive way, because I guess the start, the starting point is thinking about what's gone well. Yeah, um, we're really aware of our privilege. That yeah. I have a I have a six foot lunk now. Yes, yes. Um, so, what do you think? You know, has well has that partnership worked? Has the relationship between Great Ormond Street and and the family has it worked well? And and what have been the good aspects of it that people have got right? So I think, so firstly, it's worked really, really well, I think, with really only only a couple of moments where it felt like it, it wasn't. But, you know, blimey, over 19 years, that's amazing. It was really interesting thinking about what had gone well, because some of the things that went well were about clinical excellence. Some of the things that went well were about interpersonal excellence. And some of the things were about policies. So the policy thing that went really well was that um, Great Ormond Street hugely support breastfeeding. Um, so, and I am, and I'm absolutely certain they would also hugely support bottle feeding. But what I'm saying is if you are a breastfeeding mother of a baby patient, like I was, they have things like uh, rooms where you can go and there are breast pumps and you can express, well, not breast pumps, plural, because that would kind of assume that it was communal, but you know, it was a private room with one <laughs> breast pump. <laughs> so one of the things that happens when you are the parent of a critically ill baby is you move from what I'm going to call normal in inverted commas, which is that you provide everything for that child. You provide all their food, you clean them, you comfort them, you do everything and you move into a, an arena where you can pretty much do nothing. Right. You their life needs to be saved and you can't save it. You can't do it. And you you are helpless then to save your child. And when he was so he had the operation and then he was in the CIC, the cardiac um, ICU. And he had a nasogastric tube and they started putting food down it. And because of their policy, the first food he had was my breast milk. And that was the thing only I could do. Everybody else saved his life and I couldn't save him. But the thing that they couldn't, only I could give him his mother's breast milk. And it, I really, really remember that as being massively helpful to me in those very difficult days after the operation mm -hmm. and that's a policy mm -hmm. like policies don't sound like cuddly things do they right but it sounds like that made a huge difference to you in terms of you being having a role to play there was there was something you had a job that you could do to contribute towards saving this child's life Right. Yeah, it did. It was empowering. And actually, in, in general, when I look at what worked, a lot of what works when it's good is about being empowered because you're I'm guessing a lot of the people that will listen to this will be medical professionals of one kind or another or pharmaceutical professionals or whatever. So they are on the expert side. And I think it's might be really important to know 
how absolutely disempowered and, and passive you can feel and how harmful that can be. Because, I mean, it's obviously not harmful because pretty much every day of life I give thanks for that expertise that I didn't have on the doctors and nurses and whatever did. But particularly when it's a, it's not you, when it's your your kid, mm-hmm. it's 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 good to to be empowered and to to feel like you're not just passively having stuff happen to your child that you're meant to be the one that gives them everything. It seems really thoughtful to involve the family as much as possible because. Once that emergency repair work's been done and the surgeons have, have done their, their job, they have to hand the baby back to you and then you have to take over. So it's really important at that age that you feel involved and that you feel that you're part of that team, I guess. Absolutely. And then shall I tell you the really interesting thing is then the same thing happens at the other end of the process. So this was delayed for us because of COVID, um, because Cal turned um, he turned 18 um, at the end of 2020. So it was delayed for us. But but I watched in the last, so really from him being maybe 16, 17 to 19, which is when they discharged him into adult care, I watched them empower him. Mm-hmm. They would, I mean, always, even when he was a tiny tot, care would be addressed to him as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old. I think, I think Great Ormond Street's slogan is something like the child first and always, something like that. And it was really enacted in the way that they talked to him. But his last few cardiology appointments, there was this really, there was a specific doctor whose interpersonal skills were pretty much off the scale. He was incredible. And what I really noticed is that he talked to Cal as a whole person. He didn't talk to Cal as a condition with a human attached. But there must be a link, mustn't there, between addressing somebody as somebody who is autonomous and has huge value and that person then going on to make really good quality health decisions for himself. And I think what you touched on there are the some of the aspects that make for a really good partnership, specifically in healthcare, where there is, there has been in the past the sort of um, disparity in in power and authority. You know, the bad old days of doctor knows best, patients and their families just do as they're told. You've, and you've drawn out these really important aspects like like um, uh, feeling empowered as opposed to just being a passive. Um, kind of recipient of of healthcare, and particularly thinking about the clinical team treating Cal as a as a whole entire person, and I completely agree with you. I think that's that makes a huge difference. I wondered if there were aspects that you could identify over the years where that partnership didn't work quite so well. So, firstly, I, I suppose it's fair to say not very many. Okay, and also what I've talked about that works is very much feels like a kind of whole hospital approach. And the bits that don't work felt like individual things. And therefore, I'm going to talk about them, but I 
I don't always know how fair it is to talk about them. So, I mean, for what it's worth, um, I thought about I thought about clinically one thing that went wrong, and I thought about interpersonally a couple of weird moments. Clinically, um, as Cal was approaching secondary, about to go into secondary school, um, he had an ultrasound, so he had to have regular ultrasound. He had a an ultrasound, and they said, "Ooh, I don't like the look of that valve. You might have to have open heart surgery again quite soon." So his entry into secondary school was done under the cloud of that. And what they said was, we won't know more until we've done an MRI and you can't have the MRI for months because there's a really long waiting list. So he, his first months at secondary school, as well as having to deal with the difficulty of that transition, he also had to deal with the fact that he might have an op. And because they, they always tell ch- children the truth, so literally... In the scanning room, before they'd done the checky MRI thing, they started preparing him for open heart surgery. I don't mean clinically, I mean emotionally. So, right, we think you're going to have to have an op. This is how it's going to be. And any questions. And then in the weeks that followed, he would ask me his questions. And they were, they showed how scared he must be feeling. I mean, he would ask questions like, what if I wake up in the night and I need the loo and you're not there and I don't know where to go? You know, he was just a little boy. He was like 10 or 11 at that point. And so we answered those questions as best we could and we tried to deal with our emotions as best we could and we tried to get him into his new school as best we could. And as luck had it, about three months or so, I remember it was like, it was literally between Christmas and New Year, the hospital rang us and said, we have had a sort of sudden cancellation. Can you get him in like the day after tomorrow for an MRI? And they did. And they said he was absolutely fine. There's no problem whatsoever. So on the one hand, obviously enormous relief. On the other hand, and of course, when you're in the middle of that enormous relief, you are not minded to then go back and say, was this a mistake? Is this like a common problem? I don't want to be a pain in the ass patient, but... I've you've given that child to me you've you've started preparing him for an op literally as we sit there in the room you just having had a look at the ultrasound and then you've given that child to me to look after and nurture and deal with his fear and his anxiety for months and then you oh no it's fine so I felt like that was a part where it wasn't working but I, I also feel like I'm not expert enough to know whether look when you're a patient sometimes we just get stuff wrong we're going to get a certain amount wrong we're doing the best we can and maybe it's just not fair to use that as an example of the relationship not I just don't know I know it called it was phenomenally difficult for him and he was a very frightened young little boy and I don't know whether that's just them's the breaks That's such a fascinating example of just confusion and miscommunication, really. What I guess in my experience is one of the classic things that can go wrong in collaboration. And then I guess there's this other piece about just service design is kind of really challenging ourselves when we set up services and systems to go, well, actually, okay, there's a there's a waiting list for the MRI scans, but what is the impact of that wait? on the the people that we're trying to look after? I mean, it's a really, really good thing about Great Ormond Street that they 
they really respect the kids that they serve. And part of that is about absolute honesty. Even when the news is the worst news you can give a child, they are honest. But I wonder whether the idea of always tell the child that you like, do you do that maybe after the MRI? Or do you do that when you've had your first scan? I, and that's, again, you know, that's a policy decision, maybe. I don't know. Mm. So interesting. What would you do differently um, if you, or what advice would you give your 19 years ago self? So I can think of two pieces of advice, Mm -hmm. but one piece of advice would be pause and breathe. If staff do something that, that you want to react to, just wait. And I, can I give you a couple of examples of this? So one was great. So I slept in the hospital with Cal the night before his op because you went down early. So you wake up early and then you begin the process. So the nurse came to the ward after I'd woken up and said, I will be looking after Cal when he comes out of theatre. But the way she said it was she went, hi, I'm let's call her Tamsin. Hi, I'm Tamsin. I'm going to be Caleb's nurse. And it was really funny because I said to my husband, oh my God, the nurse just patronised me, something rotten. And it was only later when my husband, who you will, in both these stories, you will understand he's a sensible one. He said, I think she wasn't talking down to you. I think she was talking at your level, right? That's interesting. Like my feelings in the moment are you're patronizing me, but actually I'm barely functioning here. I once was walked from the from a waiting room um uh in a in a in a cancer clinic, walked from the waiting room to the into the the, the into the clinic room, and this nurse told me her name three times in in that walk because she understood that in that moment many people are not able to concentrate you know you might be you you don't you don't know what the news is you're not you're not necessarily thinking and like you it was only afterwards I thought that nurse whose name I then knew and remembered because she'd taken the care to repeat it so that I knew who she was it's very it's very skillful so we were at one point and actually I think this was in a pre-op like a week before we were waiting in a paediatric cardiology waiting room and there was a boy in there and he looked to be about 12 and he was alone in there and a nurse came in she said oh hey Tom um you're here for your checkup is anyone with you and Tom went no no I came by myself today and you could see written all over that nurse's face just for like a really quick second a kind of mixture of compassion and upset and fury and then she did this incredible thing within one second she quickly changed her face and she went oh my goodness me you are growing up fast you'll be bringing your girlfriend in next oh I love that that so much I was blown away by that interpersonal skill unbelievable that as soon as she started feeling it, she would know that he would feel small and scared. So she talked to him adult to adult. So one of the bits of advice I'd give is that 
that that relationship is two-sided. It's not just about the health professional being perfect. Sometimes it's about the service user just breathing and just counting to 10 and trying to imagine what a whole picture might be. So that's the first bit of advice I'd give me. And then really quickly, the second bit of advice I'd give, um, things, um, things were like not super rocky, although they felt it at the time, but, but he wasn't quite doing what he should post-operatively. There were things that needed to be fixed. He needed drugs input that they weren't expecting to and blah, blah. And it felt incredibly frightening. I was very, very, very scared. And so was my husband. And in what are, the way I cope with fear in a situation like that is by getting as much data as possible. So I basically went to every doctor that I saw and said, this is happening. When's it going to get better? What's happening? And what I learned was you can't do that. You can't ask every doctor because every doctor will give you a very slightly different answer and you will really panic then. And also some doctors, this is the third or fourth time that they'll be seeing this issue. Some doctors, it's the 23rd or 24th time and they're the consultants. And Shelley, why don't you wait for the consultant? So that's the bit of advice I'd give. Just... Again, just it's so easy now that I know how the story ended to advise myself to be calm and thoughtful, you know, because my prefrontal cortex is now in full swing when I think about this. But actually, it was pretty limbic in the moment. That's so beautifully put, isn't it, now that you know how the story ended? Because, of course, in that in that moment... You didn't know what was going to happen and you must have all feared the absolute worst. Totally. Mm. And it's a hard, you know, I mean, it is a obviously phenomenally hard thing to have to look right in the eyes of that your child might die. Mm. And it doesn't, it's very, very hard to be the best self you can be when you're looking at in the face. I would argue that you don't, that that's an extra level of pressure that you don't need at that moment. But <laughs> <laughs> that is true. But we are talking about, I suppose, because we're talking about what makes for successful health partnerships. I suppose you're right. I don't want to put too much pressure on myself and certainly don't want to beat myself up. But I also think that, that patients bear some of the responsibility, or patients' parents bear some of the responsibility for how well those work. It's a really interesting perspective, actually, to think about our responsibilities as, as users of the NHS. And I think and hope that as we all get better at empowering patients, then these sorts of questions will be kind of more um, openly discussed. Um, but thank you, Shelley, for sharing with us um, your personal perspective of um, the care that you and Cal received and the family received from Great Ormond Street. Delighted that you have a 19-year-old lunk who's still <laughs> clumping about. Um, and just thanks so much for sharing that story and that wisdom with us. It was um, a genuine pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be on the podcast. 
Next time, I'll be joined by David Badcock, the Chief Executive of Drug Science, which is the UK's leading independent scientific body providing information on drugs. He'll be telling us about the challenges and rewards of setting up and nurturing partnerships that drive change for some of the most vulnerable people in our society and the role that life sciences companies can play. You can send your questions for David by emailing claire at dovetailstrategies.com or contacting me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and goodbye.